Welcome to the Classic Speeches Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, bringing you treasured talks from 70 years of BYU devotionals. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts, or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. I've sought for the help of the Lord in selecting a subject and also for some help in delivering that subject. The desire to do well is not a selfish one. I'm concerned that if I do not do well, it might reflect adversely upon religious education, and I wouldn't want that to happen. Or it might appear that the subject matter isn't important, and I would not want to convey that either. And so, for the sake of the message, and the reputation of this university, and out of consideration for your time, I pray for a facility of expression that I'll be helped by the Holy Spirit, and that the same Spirit will also carry that message into your hearts, so that whereas I might lack, the Spirit would generously supply. For what I say today, I alone am responsible, although I believe what I'm going to say is true. I'm particularly grateful for the help I got from the topical guide in the new edition of the scriptures, and also for the index in the new edition of the triple combination, which helped me find the references I wanted more quickly. Now, this is a happy time of year. We become excited about Christmas, we sing, we get the spirit of giving, we sing and we talk and we think about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, about his birth into mortality. He was born in a manger, and it really was a holy night. He is the Son of God, the Father and of Mary. Prophets testified of his coming. Angels sang. Shepherds rejoiced. Stars shone. Wise men came. Herod worried. And the Father smiled upon that birth. And the devil did everything he could to destroy that child after he was born. Eternity was intensely interested in what went on that day. The record of the birth of Jesus is given to us in the New Testament, and the New Testament is a witness for Jesus Christ. And we are all more or less familiar with the material that's in the New Testament that deals with the birth of Jesus. But the Book of Mormon is also a witness for and a testament of Jesus Christ, and it gives us insights and concepts about why the birth of Jesus took place and why it was so important. There is no other book in all this world that tells us as clearly about the mission of Jesus Christ as does the Book of Mormon. Whereas the Bible tells us what happened, the Book of Mormon and other Latter-day scriptures tell us why it happened. The Bible writers also knew why, 
but the Bible has not come to us in its original purity and clarity. And thus the Lord has brought forth these other records in plain terms, so that we might not wander in darkness and in oblivion. The Lord wants us to know about the greatest truths in the history of mankind. I remember a number of years ago when the first astronauts got to the moon, the President of the United States made a comment and he said that's the greatest week in history. I remember the Reverend Billy Graham corrected him and said no. The greatest week in history was the week in which Jesus made the atoning sacrifice. And I thought to myself, the Reverend Dr. Graham was correct that time. <laughs> I'd like to read some basic scriptures. First from Doctrine and Covenants, section 130. We don't ordinarily think of this one in connection with Christmas, but I'd like to read it to you, and I think you will see before we get through that it does have a connection. Section 130, verses 20 and 21. There is a law irre irrevocably decreed in heaven before the foundations of this world upon which all blessings are predicated. And when we obtain any blessing from God, it is by obedience to that law upon which it is predicated. And you notice that scripture said that that foundation and those rules were laid down before the world was created. Now, I've been impressed with many things in the Book of Mormon. I'd like to read a comment from Nephi, this one in chapter 11 of 2 Nephi, beginning with verse 4. Now Nephi says this, Behold, my soul delighteth in proving unto my people the truth of the coming of Christ. For for this end hath the law of Moses been given, and all things which have been given from the beginning of the world unto man are typifying of Christ. My soul delighteth in the covenants which the Lord of the Lord, which he hath made unto our fathers. Yea, my soul delighteth in his grace, and in his justice, and his power, and his mercy, and in the great and eternal plan of deliverance from death. And my soul delighteth in proving unto my people that save Christ should come, all man must perish. And that's why it was just that important, that if Christ did not come, all men would perish. Now in Alma chapter 12, beginning with verse 22, a missionary situation. And Alma says, Now Alma said unto him, This is the thing which I was about to explain. Now we see that Adam did fall by the partaking of the forbidden fruit according to the word of God. And thus we see that by his fall, all mankind became a lost and fallen people. And now behold, I say unto you that if Adam, it had been possible for Adam to have partaken of the fruit of the tree of life at that time, there would have been no death. 
and the word of God would have been void, making God a liar, for he said, If thou eat, thou shalt surely die. And we see that death comes upon mankind, yea, the death which has been spoken of by Amulek, which is the temporal death. Nevertheless, there was a space granted unto man in which he might repent. Therefore, this life became a probationary state, a time to prepare to meet God, a time to prepare for that endless state which has been spoken of by us, which is after the resurrection of the dead. Another passage from Alma, chapter 22, another missionary situation. We look at chapter 22, verse 13. And Aaron did expound unto him the scriptures from the creation of Adam, laying the fall of man before him, and their carnal state, and also the plan of redemption, which was prepared from the foundation of the world, through Christ, for all whosoever would believe on his name. And since man had fallen, he could not merit anything of himself. But the sufferings and the death of Christ atoned for their sins, through faith and repentance, and so forth. And that he breaketh the bands of death, that the grave shall have no victory, and that the sting of death should be swallowed up, in the hopes of glory. And Aaron did expound all these things unto the king. Now there is passage after passage in the Book of Mormon and in other scriptures indicating that the fall of Adam brought death upon mankind, two kinds of death. The death of the body, which is the death with which we are familiar with in relation to mortuaries and funerals and undertakers, then the death of the spirit, which means a separation from things of righteousness or an alienation from the things of God. Because of the fall of Adam, first Adam and then all of his posterity suffer both of those deaths. Now, if there were no atonement made by someone who was not subject to those deaths, if there were no atonement made by Jesus Christ, then mankind would everlastingly remain subject to those two deaths and could not redeem himself. And so it was absolutely critical that the Lord come into the world and work out an atonement. Now I'd like to read a passage from Second Nephi, chapter 9. This is spoken of by Nephi's younger brother, Jacob. Jacob is the great doctrinal preacher of the Book of Mormon. He is the great theologian. It would be hard to measure one prophet against another, but some have gifts in one direction and others have gifts in another. And Jacob, whom we will now quote, had a great insight and a great facility of expression to explain the atonement. So I'm reading from Second Nephi chapter 9 and starting with verse 20. O oh, how great the holiness of our God! For he knoweth all things, and there is not anything save he knows it. And he cometh into the world that he may save all men, if they will hearken unto his voice. For behold, he suffereth the pains of all men, yea, the pains of every living creature, both men and women, 
and children who belong to the family of Adam. And he suffereth this, that the resurrection might pass upon all men, and that all might stand before him at the great and judgment day. Now also from this same Jacob, in this same chapter, but a little earlier, beginning with verse 6. For as death hath passed upon all men to fulfill the merciful plan of the great Creator, there must needs be a power of resurrection. And the resurrection cometh by reason of the fall. And the fall came by reason of transgression. And because man became fallen, they were cut off from the presence of the Lord. Wherefore, it must needs be an infinite atonement. Save it should be an infinite atonement, this corruption could not put on incorruption. Wherefore, the first judgment which came upon man would have remained to an endless duration. Now, the first judgment which came upon man was, Thou shalt surely die. And it involved both of those deaths, the death of the body and to die as to things pertaining to righteousness, which the scriptures call spiritual death. All the wisdom of God, his mercy and grace. For behold, if the flesh should rise no more, that is, if there were no resurrection of the body, then our spirits must become subject to that angel who fell from before the presence of the eternal God and became the devil to rise no more. And our spirits must become like unto him. And we become devils, angels to a devil, to be shut out from the presence of our God, to remain with the father of lies in misery like unto himself. Oh, how great the goodness of our God, who prepareth a way for our escape from the grasp of this awful monster, yea, that monster death and hell, which I call the death of the body and also the death of the spirit. Now I have noticed in just listening that quite often when we talk about our Savior, we talk about the resurrection. But we rarely talk about what, what would have been our circumstance if there had been no atonement by Jesus. I remember one time in a class many years ago of uh, listening to a discussion, and we were all teenagers at the time, and one of the students asked the teacher, this was not here at BYU, but uh, asked the teacher, well, what would have become of our spirits? if there had been no redemption by Jesus. And I remember he scratched his head, and he didn't have very much hair on his head. And I thought that was funny then, but I have great respect for that now. And um, I remember he said, well, I don't know what would have happened to our spirits. But I give it as my impression and my guess that if there were no atonement by Jesus, we would still go on to whatever degree of glory we had merited, but we'd have to go there as spirits without a body because Jesus brought to pass the resurrection, and if there were no, no resurrection, we'd have no body. There was not any of us in the class that knew enough about the gospel to know whether that was the right answer or not. But sometime later, when I was on a mission and was reading Second Nephi, and I came across this, 
it being only a couple of years after that earlier conversation, I realized that had Jacob been in that meeting that day, he would have said, now wait a minute. This is what the atonement of Jesus does for us. It not only will bring the body forth from the grave, but it redeems the spirit from what otherwise would have been an endless, miserable condition with the whole. Or to say it in other words, every man, woman, and child, everybody who belongs to the father of Adam would have become a son of perdition had there been no atonement by Jesus Christ. Now, Jacob, knowing that, and having commented upon it, then says these words, which we've already read but need to read again, Oh, how great the goodness of our God, who prepareth a way for our escape from the grasp of that awful monster, yea, that monster death and hell, which I call the death of the body and also death of the spirit. And so when we sing and think and read and talk and meditate upon the coming of the Son of God into the world, we need to think in terms of what he did for mankind, all mankind, both as to the resurrection of the body and in bringing them forth out of what would have been a most miserable and gloomy existence. When Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly, you see that gives altogether new meaning and additional meaning to that concept. Now there are so many passages we could not read them all. I'd like to read from second or from the book of um, Luke chapter 22 which tells about Jesus going into the garden of Gethsemane. And there he wrought out an atonement for all mankind. In Luke 22, beginning with verse 39, And he came out and went, as he was wont, to the Mount of Olives. And his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast. And he kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling upon the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. Now it was there in Gethsemane, on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, that Jesus made this perfect atonement and wrought that atonement by the shedding of his blood, more so than on the cross. We have a corroboration of that concept in the Doctrine and Covenants in section 19, where the Lord again speaks and explains his experience 
in going through that. I'm reading from section 19 of the Doctrine and Covenants, beginning with verse 16. For behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all, that they might not suffer if they would repent. But if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I, which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain, to bleed at every pore, to suffer both body and spirit, and would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. Nevertheless, glory be to the Father, and I partook and finished my preparations unto the children of men. Wherefore I command you again to repent, lest I humble you with my almighty power, and that you confess your sins, lest you suffer these punishments of which I have spoken, of which in the smallest, yea, even in the least degree, you tasted at the time that I withdrew my spirit. Now all of us have at some time or other done some little thing, more or less little, and caused the spirit to leave us. And we felt low, we felt down, we felt alone, and yet we were only losing the spirit because of something which we had done, us personally. But when Jesus, who had had the Holy Ghost all the days of his life, and the Holy Ghost is the Comforter, and he had had the help of that ever since he had been born, and all through his life, in every trial, and every endeavor, and every temptation, he had the strength of the Holy Ghost to be with him. But as he went into the Garden of Eden, not the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and began to take upon him our sins, the Father withdrew the Spirit from him, and he wrought that atonement alone. Now he refers to that in this verse, which we just read, where he said that was a pretty hard thing to bear. And then he said, you tasted in the smallest, yea, even in the least degree, at the time I withdrew my spirit from you. Now Jesus committed no sins, but he did carry upon himself our sins. And you know the scripture that says, I have trodden the winepress alone? Well, at that time, the Father withdrew the Spirit that he might tread that winepress alone. He alone is our Redeemer and our Savior. Well, we have a passage of scripture in the New Testament in John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now the Bible makes that great statement and does say that without the Savior we would perish. But it takes the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Prize to explain why we would have perished. We would have perished because of the fall of Adam, we being unable to save ourselves. Now, just quickly, a, a few more concepts. 
I've often thought about the war in heaven and what took place there. We understand that the Savior was there selected in that pre-mortal life as our Redeemer. We knew him there. Our first acquaintance with Jesus began many hundreds of years before we were ever born, thousands of years. When we talk about our relationship to the Savior and our redemption, we must begin with our pre-mortal life. I think we often miss the real issue and the contention in the spirit world that eventually led to the war in heaven. We talk about it as though Lucifer were going to force everybody to obey. He said, I will save them all. And then we interpret that as meaning he's going to have forced obedience. It always seems strange to me that a third of all the spirits that could have been born into this world would have favored a plan that would cause them to be, have forced obedience. Most of us don't like to be forced. As I see it, the real issue is not so much one of force as it was that Lucifer said he would guarantee their salvation. He promised salvation without excellence, without effort, without hard work, without individual responsibility. That's the lie which he promulgated in the pre-earth councils. That so-called shortcut to salvation captivated many gullible and lazy spirits. They wanted something for nothing. We have certain aspects of that in our life today, where things are offered, something for nothing, a free lunch we sometimes call it, <coughs> with certain kinds of subsidies which promise to guarantee the reward without the effort. On that basis, Lucifer led away many spirits. But individual progress doesn't come that way. Only by serious and strenuous exertion do we improve in character and in spiritual growth. Our society, in our society, we still come in contact with many who are influenced by this erroneous philosophy that they think they can achieve salvation and exaltation without a struggle. We're still fighting the war in heaven, but we're fighting it on new territory and on a different battleground, but with the same participants and the same issue. Having ascertained that the devil's program was one of promising excellence without effort, we can better appreciate the real struggle that Jesus had and that all of us have in order to do our best in this world to overcome our weaknesses and to obtain redemption from the effects of mortality. In view, it is in view of the pre-mortal life and the issues that were fought in the war in heaven that everything else in the ministry of Jesus and in the gospel must be understood. If we overlook pre-mortal life, then we never will get a clear perspective necessary to understand the gospel and mortality. But when we do have that concept, then when we talk about Christmas and the night that Christ was born and the star that led the way so that later the wise men might find him and the angels who came and spoke to the shepherds, and when we find the enthusiasm of the prophets in predicting and prophesying the coming of the Savior, we begin to know why, why they were so excited. This was a turning point in the history of mankind. Jesus was the divinely appointed beloved Son of God the Father, and he was born of Mary into mortality. In many ways, in the incidentals, like eating and talking and the wearing of clothes, he was like other men. But in parentage, being sired by the Eternal Father himself, he was very different from all others. 
It was necessary that he be different from others so that he could make a payment for the transgression of Adam and for everyone's personal, individual sins. Every other person that has been born into the world has been born subject to the fall of Adam and therefore subject to death. Only Jesus was able to die but remain not dominated by death. Thus, when he chose to die, not having been made subject either by Adam's fall or by any sins of his own, he could shed his blood and give his life as an offering for others. He could also rise from the dead with a perfect, glorified physical body. No one else was able to do that. Then, as we draw to the close of our comments, I would just like to say that many of us, if not all, labored as missionaries for the Savior in that pre-mortal life, going around among the spirits, persuading others to choose the Savior, following Him, preparing for earth life. We now have a veil of forgetfulness drawn over our minds, and we don't remember the details of those events. Yet the spiritual capacity that we developed in that pre-earth life has come with us into this mortality. And when we hear the gospel preached, it strikes a familiar note. We are learning again principles we once knew, and that capacity responds to every true doctrine that is taught to us when it is properly stated. Our main business in this world is to continue that spiritual development that we started so long ago, and this we will do by obedience to the gospel. Jesus said about himself, I am the way, the truth, the life, the light, the resurrection. I am the law. I am the lawgiver. I am the standard, the door, the savior the shepherd, the redeemer, the example, the master, the advocate. I am your judge. I am your friend. I am your Lord. I am your God. And I am the only way that you can be redeemed. Of Jesus, Paul wrote to the Philippians, the name of Christ is above every other name. I've sometimes um, reflected upon the importance and the seriousness of all of this and realize when, when something goes wrong with us how quickly we complain, how quickly we feel that we've been wronged. And yet, you know, the Lord enjoins us to be patient, to be full of love, to be long-suffering, to be forgiving, and to pattern our lives after him. Now, we started this discussion today by quoting from the Doctrine and Covenants where the Lord said, Every blessing we obtain in this life is by obedience to a law and a plan that was worked out before the world. And then we read a statement from Nephi where he said, I delight in proving to my people the importance of the coming of Christ that save he should come, there would be a dearth and a gloom come upon all mankind. And now a word from Alma. I'm reading Alma chapter 13, and we start with verse 22. 
yea, the voice of the Lord, by the mouths of angels, doth declare it unto all nations. Yea, doth declare it, that they may have glad tidings of great joy. Yea, and he doth sound these glad tidings among all his people. Yea, even to them that are scattered abroad upon the face of the earth. Wherefore, they have come unto us. And the gospel is made known unto us in plain terms, that we may understand that we cannot err. And this because of our being wanderers in a strange land. Therefore, we are thus highly favored. Not to recognize and to appreciate the Atonement of Christ is the greatest of all ingratitude. To ignore him is the height of folly. To obey him is the greatest happiness and is the greatest display of wisdom that we can demonstrate on this earth. To follow the Lord and to keep his commandments. If we take away from the plan of salvation the doctrine of the fall of Adam and the doctrine of the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, and if we take away from that the concept of the pre-earth life, then we make of the gospel simply a system of ethics, and that will not do. Now, the gospel is ethical, but it is so much more than that. And so I rejoice with you at this time of year and all the time, every time of year. But we're reminded of it by the beautiful music and the Christmas cards and the sentiments and all that we express at Christmas time. I rejoice with you in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I guess we could say it this way, so glad he came. And so we see that our association with him is not optional. It's not casual. It was absolutely critical and necessary. He has honored us by letting us bear his name for all of us when we're baptized, take upon ourselves the name of Jesus Christ. That's an honor, a privilege. He calls us servants until we reach a certain level of faithfulness, and then he calls us friends. The promise is that we will become joint heirs with Jesus in all that the Father has. And so as we move in the next few days towards the day in which we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, let us all remember and mingle our testimonies with those of the prophets that Jesus Christ, our elder brother, the Son of God, is our leader, our example, and our Savior. And I just want to bear testimony that I know those doctrines which I have taught to you this day are true. 
And I pray that the Spirit of the Lord might bear those into your hearts, that as we read the Christmas story, we might realize not only what happened, but why it happened, and then measure our favorite condition today. And all of this I say and pray and testify to in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Classic Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts, including recent speeches, updated weekly with new talks given on BYU campus, as well as other speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.